Hello and welcome back to Malopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity Malopathy.org. Where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers and the people living with myelopathy. I'm Ewan Sadler, person with DCM and a founder of Malopathy.org. And I'm Ben Davies, neurosurgeon scientist and also founder of Myelopathy.org. This is Myelopathy Matters. So today we're turning our attention to the far side of the world, New Zealand, where our guest Rohil Shohan comes from. Oh, New Zealand. Well, that's the word that strikes fear into the heart of any rugby fan. But I'm glad we ain't discussing the Rugby World Cup. But yes, it's great that our reach is improving and we can prove pathways for people with DCM. So I'm looking forward to this interview. You're quite right, actually, thinking about that. A Welshman, an Englishman and a Kiwi on a call together. We did certainly oh, commiserate. No. On, on the topic of rugby, but this is keeping it all to, to myelopathy because whilst um, New Zealand may be a long way from the UK for myelopathy, there are still the same challenges, which means plenty of opportunity for shared solutions. So Rohill's been working with frontline professionals to understand their awareness of DCM with some very interesting lessons. So I'm delighted to welcome Rohil Shohan from New Zealand, physiotherapist by background, now working in a diagnostic and triage role in Auckland. Welcome, Rohil. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ewan. Thanks for the invite. It's been really great sitting and listening in on some of the other podcasts and seeing the work that's come of the Recode project and the Myelopathy.org incubators. So I'm pleased to be here. Well, we're pleased to have you, and we're really interested to tap into your experience of trying to identify myelopathy, which we know is a challenge, and it's sort of how we met, and really delighted that something like Myelopathy Law can bring together all these perspectives from different professions, different locations around the globe to, to work on what is an ultimately the critical challenge, I think, for, for this condition. So perhaps we could start really by, you know, talking to you about what your experience of, of identifying uh, and managing myelopathy, and I guess why you became interested in it. So my background is within physiotherapy, working in private practice and musculoskeletal. And but over the past couple of years, I've been working with a spine surgeon in in the triage and diagnosis of spine cases. And it was only when I was going through routine assessments for all these patients who were presenting with other spinal conditions where I came across a lot of incidental cases of myelopathy. People who came in with other concurring presentations of lumbar radiculopathy or lumbar spinal stenosis. And it was only when we investigated further we found actually these people also have DCM, but it just took a close eye to identify them. How did you take an interest to go a little bit beyond in terms of how you know you were trying to explore beyond maybe the focus of what their symptoms were? For me, it started as I was seeing patients for the spine surgeon. I felt it was my responsibility to make sure I'm not missing anything. And I was going through full subjective histories and full neurological examinations to make sure that I'm crossing my T's and dotting my I's. And it was only when I started doing those examinations, I started realizing there are some of these signs which I previously weren't performing that now I'm seeing these patients actually have signs that are worth exploring further. That's really interesting because I think if I draw draw parallels into the United Kingdom where we have uh, about half of the patients with myelopathy come through a similar formula. We have this thing called the musculoskeletal service, which is an interface between primary and secondary care 
which is largely run by um, physiotherapists, trained practitioners, so advanced mm. ESPs or, or whatever the, the terminology the is. And they are designed to have a similar role, but I don't know necessarily in all cases whether it's 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 being as effective as perhaps your your experience is. And I just wonder whether that's a question of the awareness amongst physiotherapists for, for myelopathy. You know, you've, taken a, you've chosen to take a very comprehensive approach, but is that shared, do you think, by, by your colleagues everywhere? Yeah, agreed. I think the setting that I work in, like I said, is, is quite unique in New Zealand. In secondary care here, um, where we're getting direct referrals from primary care, secondary care is mainly led by the specialists. There aren't those advanced practice or advanced scope physiotherapists who are working in secondary care. Generally, the advanced scope physios are working in tertiary care where they do have this triage kind of role, but that's not so much happening in secondary care. In the majority of physiotherapists are working in more primary care roles, and I agree with you that the awareness there based on our previous studies are is low. So that's really interesting because I'm sort of getting a sentiment that, you know, this triage role from a very focused and, and, and well-trained professional is, is, is incredibly valuable, but clearly there needs to be an awareness of the potential differentials like myelopathy. And it's clear that, you know, we, we also see that the knowledge and awareness of myelopathy is, is, is low. And I know that's something you've been trying to promote now in the, the role that you have and the experience that you've gained amongst your colleagues in, in New Zealand. I just wanted to hear a little bit about, you know, what's that experience been like, you know, promoting the message and, and raising awareness? So as you will have seen, we, we ran a survey to understand New Zealand primary healthcare's um, awareness of DCM and how confident they were to screen for it. And we got um, over 300 responses and and primary care, the clinicians we were interested in was the awareness of GPs, physiotherapists, chiropractors, osteopaths, and nurse practitioners who make up our primary care. And again, these clinicians are very much generalists. So while osteos, physios, and chiros will work in a musculoskeletal field, they won't have the advanced training in spinal diagnostics that a lot of the clinicians in secondary and tertiary care will have. So we just wanted to know how well are these people aware of the condition, how confident they are to be able to screen for it. And our findings suggested that only one in five clinicians were quite aware of the condition and even less, 16%, were quite confident to be able to screen for the signs and symptoms. And further, when we looked at the, the clinicians who were quite confident, we found that there was quite a lot of variation in the signs and symptoms that they had chosen in terms of a diagnostic criteria. While the symptoms of gait disturbance, hand dexterity de decline, neck pain, stiffness, and upper limb pain and paresthesia were reasonably well identified, it was the signs, the clinical tests, that there was a lot less confidence and a lot less awareness of which tests would, would give what um, results and um, what that would mean in terms of escalating care for these patients. Generally, the majority of patients who answered were quite confident in knowing who the best person to refer to was. And they generally would answer on the basis of what local networks and pathways they had. But generally, an orthopedic spine surgeon, neurosurgeon or neurologist were the three avenues that majority of respondents had, had chosen. I'd like to pick up on that a bit more detail because I think this is really interesting shared shared knowledge because what you're sort of learning there I think is that once a clinician or practitioner is suspecting myelopathy then the process is seems they seem to know what to do is that your sense of that that information correct For what we found is that if clinicians were able to pick the right signs and symptoms, put it together, then they seem to be quite um, understanding of what their pathways are confirm the diagnosis
But it's that initial hurdle of getting it into their mind to think about it and then trying to give them the confidence to bring a few things together to help them refine their differential, I think, which is a big challenge for us. Correct. And that kind of speaks to such large variation in some of the symptom presentations and and the non-specificity of a lot of these symptoms that patients will complain of because they won't necessarily um, come and tell you, I've got these combinations of symptoms unless the patient themselves is aware of it. Um, And I think that also speaks to the role that I think physiotherapists even working in primary care have. It's quite known that physiotherapists will generally follow up with patients over in private practice over extended periods of times and generally will have longer consultation times. So we've got that potential to build a really good rapport with our patients and really get to understand the emergence of any symptoms that may emerge over the treatment period. One of the things I want to come back to you, Rohil, which is really impressed by what you managed to put together there is that, you know, my experience so far of trying to get to this front door audience is that it's really difficult, you know, but in your survey, you've got 300 practitioners there who have really bought into to this survey and this problem that you're trying to look at. I just wondered whether, you know, questions aside, whether you had a sort of sense of what drew them in? How did you persuade them to get interested? And a bit more of that sort of detail, really, because they're a difficult audience because, you know, fundamentally they are, you know, particularly GPs, they are being under pressure to update their knowledge about so many conditions. You know, how we get get through to them about this particular disease is a, is a big challenge. Agreed, Ben. Yeah, amongst all the individual communities that we tried to reach of clinicians, um, it was difficult. And, and currently GPs have, um, the GPs here have a lot of pressure on them and that we, we found when we reached out to the organisations to disseminate our, re- our survey, it was difficult. And I know you've had an opportunity to go around and share the findings of your survey. And I just wondered, you know, what's been the reception to that information? You know, has there been a sense of where you need to go now? Uh, on the back of that. Yeah, some of the information that we've found has been quite eye-opening and we've seen a lot of raised eyebrows when we're presenting some of this information, again, in surprise, that the significant delays to diagnosis that these patients are having and, and the, um, as a result, the, the subsequent worst long-term outcomes that is happening. Recovery of function, once people have lost function, is quite variable and, and therefore identifying these cases earlier and getting them to see spine and neurosurgeons earlier is, is important. And so those kind of messages that we're finding are kind of heading home to people and getting people more interested in when we are presenting. So it's come across very clearly from, from the work that you've done that though in some capacity, uh, although there's clearly a bit more detail, that the, the musculoskeletal practitioners, the, you know, the osteopaths, physios, chiropractors, etc., are going to be a really key audience in, in, in promoting the awareness and, and accelerating diagnosis in myelopathy. I just wonder whether your experiences more, more outside of myelopathy have shown you any potential avenues that we can, we can transfer here, I guess, in terms of you know, getting the message out there, but improving the education to that audience. And during my time working within spine, DCM has certainly been the, uh, one of the main first conditions that, you know, I've had the strong urge to try and raise awareness and simplify the approach for early identification, assessment and triage for these cases. And, and mainly because we have a specific condition here with an unfortunately progressive condition trajectory that we can play a valuable part in identifying early, mainly if we're aware of it. But I think some of the um, information that um, we see in other conditions that could be quite helpful with DCM is um, 
firstly, obviously, we're talking about the diagnostic criteria, which you guys are doing a lot of work on, um, is also having some good epidemiological data um, just to help clinicians appreciate the extent of DCM um, and that, you know, these people living with DCM aren't necessarily just waiting at surgical waiting rooms, but they're probably waiting in your primary care waiting rooms as well, just waiting for clinicians to pull together these symptoms and, and how relevant that they might be. So I think having some good epidemiological data of community dwelling presentations of people with DCM, while that's quite difficult for, for research, that would be quite useful for clinicians to have to say, actually, this is, you know, a relatively common condition. We're just not, uh, we haven't done such a great job in pulling together these symptoms and signs yet, as well as risk factors. And, and what kind of populations do we expect to find people with DCM? In? And if we look closely enough and do um, full subjective, examina uh, subjective histories and, and clinical examinations, um, what are the populations that we expect to find need further investigations and work up for DCM. Um, I think if we have good good epidemiological data and, and good understanding of risk factors, I think that plays in really well with um, proposed diagnostic criteria that are hopefully likely to come out in the over the next couple of years. We've got good data on, on how common DCM is along with the kind of the populations that are more at risk for developing DCM or testing positive in our primary, primary, secondary and tertiary clinics. I think combined, that, that combined information is very, very valuable. And that's the kind of information that we see with other health conditions such as osteoarthritis. And that really helps clinicians put these into context um, to be able to identify these cases earlier. Brilliant. Well, that's fascinating to hear, uh, Rohil. I think we're clearly hearing that there are, you know, some simple opportunities. There's clearly some knowledge gaps in terms of the kind of knowledge we need to give people, but lots of areas for, for progress. We wanted to pivot slightly because, you know, having the benefits of your expertise on, on the podcast today, Ewan has been asking in the support group of any burning questions that people had or needed answering they thought that, that might be best placed to you. It's going to go beyond a little bit your, I think your current particular role in diagnosis and triage to the sort of role of physiotherapy in, in myelopathy. But perhaps over to you, Ewan, you can, you can take over the questioning. Yeah, welcome Rohel and thank you for, you know, giving us the opportunity to ask these questions. So are there any specific exercises or therapies that are effective for improving mobility, staying active, and maintaining over overall well-being. Thanks, Ewan, and, and once again, thanks for having me on on the podcast. As part of the work we were doing on the perioperative um, incubator, we were looking at doing literature searches on um, the available evidence for physiotherapy um, and other non-operative management strategies for people with DCM, and there was. Um, there was limited research. There was limited research that was had been conducted on the non-operative approaches for DCM, and obviously this has been a very surgical and orthopedic-led kind of field of research. But while there was some research that we've seen um, for single-level soft disc herniations in people with DCM, where there's some evidence for um, soft collar use and intermittent traction um, that are generally um, supervised by physiotherapists um, to help with pain, and there is some evidence on on improvements in pain with this. Um, there's also some evidence in terms of, I, I know you've had on your previous podcast, you've had some discussions about the changes, the chronic changes that go through in muscles as a result of um, uh, spinal cord compression and, and um, nerve compromise. I don't think the research at this stage um, is conclusive. There, there certainly isn't enough research looking at um, specific exercise-based interventions or manual therapy um, approaches to help, but 
my gut feeling would say that exercise strengthening around um, the muscles of the neck, especially the extensors and the flexors to be able to help um, people develop better control um, should have good benefit. I think the progressive nature of the of the condition would be difficult to effect. It would be difficult to affect the, the disability that people face, but I think there should be good improvements in pain. That was what my gut would say. But again, plenty of research that needs to be done in that space. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, myelopathy from one person to another person is totally different. You know, the levels of disability, you know, can range so much as well. Within physiotherapy, there's been a lot of research in our modern understanding of manual therapy. And we understand manual therapy not only has a role from a biomechanical point of view where, where um, pressure is applied onto the neck or different areas to the muscles. Um, we know there are neurophysiological changes that happen as a result of applying pressure um, to certain areas and, and getting people exercising as well. Um, so there are certainly a lot of manual therapy based, which are hands-on approaches that physiotherapists are generally tradi are traditionally using um, that may have a lot of impact for whether it be short or medium term pain reduction. Um, but again, th these studies haven't been done specifically in this population, but general people with neck pain or, um, yeah. or radicular or radiculopathy. Are there any advancements or emerging trends in physiotherapy that shows promise for myelopathy patients? I think the emerging trends um, within physiotherapy research has all been about tailoring um, and giving individualized care to, to patients. And, and this extends outside of um, people living with myelopathies, just ability to um, rotate their neck and um, perform just basic day-to-day -day tasks. And while those are very, very important, but we also like to look at that patient as an that, that person as an individual and, and what are the things that are important for those, those people to be able to um, do in their day-to-day -day lives? What are the um, roles that they identify with and what, and what limitation um, their neck pain and their um, inability to um, perform tasks as having on their life. So we try and become very goal orientated in the rehab that we give to patients. Um, so it's not, yeah. uh, there's definitely not a one size fits all as with everything, but generally we will aim to give exercises um, and provide manual therapy in a manner that um, is helping people get back to the goals that are important to them. And so that's probably the most trendiest and probably the most best thing we can offer our patients. Yeah, I remember having acupuncture and actually yes. acupuncture worked for me. It released the yes. muscles and everything. But, you know, you've got a handful of people in the group then that they've tried acupuncture and it doesn't really work for them. So like you say, there's no sort of one fits all sort of therapy out there, is there? I agree, and that and that um, is probably quite similar amongst quite a few different conditions that we treat around the neck or, or just the musculoskeletal system. And like you say, um, there are some people who respond quite well to different variations of acupuncture. Some who will respond very well to hands-on therapies, and, and some who um, uh, will respond to you know. Um, adjuncts so just like massage or cupping and and i think the majority of it while these um, conditions are quite safe and low risk i think it's if patients have responded well to one or the other i think it's useful to utilize that um, while still incorporating exercise-based rehab to make sure that patients are you know getting stronger and more confident in doing the tasks that they would like to get back to but i think um 
I think that's quite similar in a lot of other physio musculoskeletal conditions that it can be quite variable how people respond and it's less to do with intervention probably more to do with how um, people are responding to the particular intervention is there a sense there perhaps that in many situations there's in less of a need to reach a diagnosis as a physiotherapist more to recognize the sort of burden of symptoms and the sort of goals of the patient then Yes, there's been a lot of emphasis on that on physiotherapy research and, and clinicians are very much focused on identifying what are the goals that patients what would like to achieve and helping them get on that track. Um, while diagnosis is important, um, uh, it's often dichotomized as you have red flags or specific pathology versus you have a um, self-limiting con condition that if you uh, monitor over time, and uh, having effective pain relief and exercise over time, this should get better. So there hasn't been an emphasis on providing a specific diagnosis. And we know in, in primary care settings with the resources and, and the types of presentations that are coming, this isn't always necessary either to be coming to a very specific diagnosis um, because the majority of cases that we see in musculoskeletal care and primary care are generally self-limiting. Um, mm -hmm. But there are signs and symptoms of cases that may potentially need further diagnostic tests and imaging to be able to confirm, um, such as people with leg dominant pain is one prime example. I've got two following questions just to hi hijack the conversation a bit, Ewan. So, because mm -hmm. I think one of our difficulties as doctors is the perspective perceptions that people come to us and they want a label they always need a diagnosis so they're never they're never very comfortable with the idea oh it's done it's nothing too serious just please go away so i think that's one interesting reflection you know what is the sort of reception of people coming to physiotherapy and being told they haven't they have not been not given a diagnosis i said this is the first question and the second question is you know i can clearly see there in terms of the action of raising awareness for myelopathy that that something like diagnostic criteria or some sort of system that puts it into the red flags category is going to be really influential in the psychology of a, of a physiotherapist yeah i agree ben and um it comes back to that paper that was published a couple of years ago when they asked patients what does what does my patient with back pain want um and you know and, and different clinicians had different approaches in terms of what they thought was important but what patients wanted was essentially an explanation for what they think is going on um, whether this is going to get better strategies that they can use to get it better um, rather than diagnostics injections and, and surgery dare i say depending on the condition obviously you know, one of the shifts that's happened in physiotherapy is while we try and identify specific signs where people may have a specific diagnosis that needs um, early escalation of care, but also it's important, we put a lot of importance on trying to understand what is the prognosis of this patient. While we don't have the capacity to necessarily make a specific diagnosis for all our patients, if we can have a proposed um, hypothesis on how well this patient is going to improve over a, a condition trajectory um, then we can effectively say okay if they haven't improved by this point i know which pathways i have available to escalate care um, and to your second point regarding getting myelopathy and dcm within um, this red flag criteria i think that's quite important because physiotherapists and primary care providers and gps have, have had a lot of emphasis on cord equina syndrome in the lumbar spine it's something that um, people ask uh, whether there's context to ask or whether there's no context to ask um, whether people have leg pain or not it's just generally something that 
physiotherapists and GPs know to ask that, do you have any bowel bladder dysfunction? It's generally a question that all our primary care providers, GPs and physios are all asking in people with back pain. So I think it is important for myelopathy, DCM, to have that recognition as something that, um, while it's not something in a lot of cases needing urgent uh, intervention and um, referrals to EDs, it is something that we should consider um, that may need a specific trajectory of escalation to different specialists to get a confirmed mm-hmm. diagnosis. Agreed. Agreed. That's fascinating. You, Ewan, sorry, back to, back to you. Yeah, I've got one more question. And probably the most asked question apart from pain neuropathy, and this was discussed yesterday, why does the cold affect us so much? And the heat of the summer months gives us a bit of a spring in our steps where we can sort of push ourselves a little more with less pain. Uh, thanks, Ewan. I, I would like to have an answer for that. And I and while I, I could hypothesize, I'd be wrong too. I don't, I don't think I, I'd be able to answer that. A mystery. A mystery. A mystery. A mystery. It will forever be a mystery. It's certainly common. We see it in people with with OA, um, whether it be the knee knee um, knee or hip, um, and people with back pain. Uh, we we do see it in people who will say, "Yeah, the cold affects me differently," but um, it's not something I've been able yeah. to explain, or not necessarily something I've looked into particularly. Another fantastic interview. And before I ask you about your perspective, Ben, I just want to say. Isn't it great how the work of myelopathy.org is able to cut across the world, you know, and reach, you know, New Zealand and other countries? It's really been fantastic. And, you know, if you think about our first few conversations, what, you know, 10, 10 years ago, the fact that we have got an audience now in, in New Zealand is, is really powerful. And I think for a, you know, for a disease which remains a small community, we really need to, you know, we really need to harness every single person out there who's interested. And it's... um the charity that seems to be able to bring them together. It's really, really great to see. And getting back to Rohil's great interview, Ben, what are your takeaways from that in-depth conversation? Well, I take away really two two simple things, I think. The first is that it seems that having an expert triage point is really critical to the myelopathy pathway. So people like Rohil, who are specifically trained to look at those at-risk groups and identify myelopathy within them, that seems to be really effective. But it also seems that the key challenge is to get people to think DCM so that people then come to someone like like Rohil who can help untangle the various different symptoms that people present with. And it seems there is the big challenge. We've got to try and plant the seed in the very, very frontline professionals of possible DCM. And if we can do that, then the pathway seems to flow. And that was also the findings from his survey. So I guess the lessons are that it's, you know, it's perhaps less of a problem in a sense of focusing on a very small part of the pathway. But equally, I think that part of the pathway is probably the most challenging. But I do hope that our diagnostic criteria that are coming along slowly could be a really helpful intervention for that specific, specific task. Yeah, and it's all good news. You know, like I've said before, we've come a long, long way and, you know, Things are just improving all the time. I've just realized this is our last podcast for 2023. We've had some great interviews. I'm looking forward to season. What season will it be? It will be season five then, isn't it? I think it will be, yeah. And 2024. And well, yeah. our first guest lined up actually is um, Rohill's you know, equivalent from the United Kingdom to get his sense on you know, the lessons that Rohill's trying to translate into practice for the UK. 
keep doing what you're doing guys keep raising awareness and you know we can you know, build a, a better pathway for people with DCM I think So thanks very much to Rohil Shohan for joining us. A very happy Christmas to you wherever you are. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast is always produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app where you'll also find all of the previous episodes. There's of course lots more information and support to be found at myelopathy.org. Please do get in touch at any time at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye. 